Welcome back to another episode of A Lamp Under My Feet. My name is Ron, and it is currently Good Friday, 2021. Um, so, on my last podcast, <clears throat> excuse me, last week, we, uh, towards the end, I made an announcement saying, you know, that I was going to go a little bit out of order um, because it is Easter weekend, and uh, I've got a specific a specific topic that I wanted to cover, that I was going to cover um, after had three topics and I was going to do one, two, three, but now I'm going to do one, three, two, just because of the nature of Easter. Um, but yeah, this is going to be, I'm going to title this one. If I had a name that I would call it, Jesus is the Messiah. And today we're going to be basically, uh, looking at the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled that, uh, that he that proved that he was the Messiah and, uh, Messiah <clears throat> meaning that he, uh, the Hebrew word meaning that he's the anointed one of God. And he's also termed as the son of God, the lamb of God. And uh, so we're going to be looking at those scriptures. Uh, going into this, the Bible gives almost uh, almost an innumerable number of prophecies or other symbolisms and foreshadowings that were fulfilled in the life of Christ. And a lot of these date all the way back to the beginning of written scriptures that we know uh, starts with Genesis. Most biblical scholars agree that Genesis was the first book that was written. Um, now, I, I'm not a you know, carbon date type of uh, expert, so I'm not going to try to get into the weeds on that, but uh, I did a little bit of research to kind of at least know what I'm talking about for the purpose of this podcast, and um, <clears throat> using partially using the Dead, sea, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls as a frame of reference for dating purposes, we'll go ahead and say that um, a lot of these, you know, date, a lot of these scriptural manuscripts, if you want to call them that, um, they date approximately about 3,400 years ago, I guess. And um, like I said, I'm not exact on that year, but um, I, I think that's a pretty good estimate based on the stuff that I was able to find. Of course, I do stand to be corrected if there's other uh, experts out there that know more than I do, which there are plenty of those people. And um, so scholars uh, have estimated that now, now that we've kind of got the dating of these things, um, it's important to understand the number of the scriptures that we're talking about and the dating of these scriptures that we're talking about because part of what makes these scriptures valid, part of what validates um, the nature of the scriptures, uh, the nature of the you know, prophecies and stuff that, that, that bring that level of, of um, credibility to them is also partly in due, largely in part to the date that they were given. So <clears throat> going into the number of scriptures so i looked at two main resources and i'll cite these again later but um, there's an estimated anywhere from 456 to 574 scriptures in the old testament that allude to christ Um, and other sources um, count somewhere around 356 now for the sake of this podcast and remaining conservative in the spirit of fairness let's just say there's around 300 scriptures that fit into this category now the reason that it's hard to get an exact count of all of them and I know that some people say there's more, some people say that there's less, but we, like I said, for the, in the spirit of fairness and for the sake of being conservative on it, let's just say 300 is a round figure. Uh, the reason that it's hard to get an exact count of all of this is because, well, there's a couple of reasons, really. Number one, not all of these are messianic scriptures per se. That means that they, they specifically, uh, messianic scriptures, um, meaning that they specifically address the coming Messiah. They foretell the coming Messiah. Many of these scriptures that we're talking about, um, they would be accomplished by Jesus either in his life, um, his birth, and whatever, his resurrection, or his ministry, 
and his death and resurrection. So not merely the four, because some of these scriptures that we look at are um, foreshadowings of a Messiah coming, but not all of those messianic uh, scriptures, messianic prophecies, um, directly deal with just the occurrence of a Messiah coming. They deal with what specifically he would accomplish. So there's a little bit of difference in the nature of it. Um, For example, if you elect a president, there's the election, and then there's the actual administration. And the administration is kind of like we'll, we'll liken the ministry of Jesus to for the sake of this uh, for the sake of this particular illustration. We'll say that you know the inauguration or the election or whatever that was the actual coming of Christ, and then the administration would be like the actual life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And so that's kind of like why some of these scriptures differ in nature. Also uh, of note, some of these scriptures do repeat themselves. So not necessarily verbatim repeat themselves, but one example of this is the fact that a lot of these different scriptures represent different types of Christ in the uh, in the scriptures. So we're not talking about Jesus came multiple times. What we're saying is that Jesus is uh, he's he's typed in the Bible. So for example, Boaz uh, is the kinsman redeemer in Ruth, and Abraham offers Isaac. Uh, on the altar as a sacrifice, which is, you know, foretelling of uh, the, you know, Mount, I think it was on Mount Moriah, which is a a foreshadowing and allusion to the future of uh, Christ being offered on the mountain as well, uh, of Calvary. Jesus foretelling his death and his burial uh, to be like Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, and so the Son of Man must also be in the heart of the earth for three days. So there's a lot of these scriptures that repeat themselves or, or, or have reoccurring themes. So that's why. So these two reasons, uh, I say all that to say this, these two reasons, that's why it's sometimes difficult to get an exact count of all the different scriptures that uh, talk about the Messiah or the Christ or uh, his life, death, burial, resurrection, all these different things. Um, and even to this day, I don't, uh, even though the number might be a little bit different, I think that, you know, I don't think there's ever going to be an exact number that we can agree on because there's so many differences with biblical scholars. Um, but the point is that there's a lot of scriptures that were written about prophecy uh, that writ, there, or there was a lot of scriptures that were written to prophesy about some part of the death, the burial, and resurrection of Christ, specifically what we would call the Passion, which we'll, for the sake of this we'll talk about uh, the Passion meaning his arrest, his torture, his crucifixion, and his death. Um, so I've chosen a couple of recently updated and reliable sources that contain information on the scriptures and their content that stays true to the nature of scripture as possible. So for the so I'll name them for you. Now I'm not necessarily endorsing these um, websites, but I will say that I found their content to be very, very closely biblically aligned. A lot of it's just straight up in your face. This is what the Bible says, and there's no uh, opinion or no spin on it whatsoever. So uh, it stays very close to the nature of the scriptures. And the first one is gotquestions.org, which is a it biblically answers a lot of questions. That people have regarding the Bible, regarding Christianity and faith. And the second one is according is literally according to the scriptures.org. And um, that's where I look that, that's kind of where I, I, I've got a lot of these from. Um, so before diving into these, it's important to remember that these Old Testament verses were recorded anywhere from several hundred years to a thousand years before the birth of, of Jesus. Now there might be some that are older and um, but for the sake of this, um, let's just, because we're not talking about every single one of them because there's literally hundreds, but I've narrowed it down to about 10 to 15 regarding the life of Christ and 10 to 15 regarding the death of Christ. And now we're not going to get into the weeds on a lot of it, but 
I will say, before we go any further, disclaimer, there's going to be a lot of scripture here, and I'm not going to go in and expound on a lot of it, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the Old Testament verse. I'm going to give you the basic context, like two or three words to give you basically what it's, you know, what it refers to. And then I'm going to give you the New Testament um, fulfillment of that scripture. Okay? So that's what we're going to do. And I'm going to do that for the life and the death of Christ. And I'm sorry if you hear paper in the background. It's because I've got like four sheets of notes here for this. So, <clears throat> pardon that, if you would. And now, let's go straight into it. So I'm going to be using Bible, some online Bible I don't even know how to say it. The online Bible stuff, like the verses, you can look it up online because I, it would take forever. This would be a lot longer if I was using um, a physical Bible. So there's that. So if you give me just one moment, I'll pull that up. I should have had it pulled up before now. That's my fault. And so for the first one, we've got in Deuteronomy 18.18, this is uh, Jesus basically confirming that the, the fact this, the prophecy was that he would be sent by the Father. <clears throat> and in Deuteronomy eighteen eighteen, this is uh, the second Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, number two, the fifth book of the Bible. But it's in the Pentateuch or the Torah, whatever you want to call it, written by Moses. It says, "I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command." Now, in John chapter eight, we see this is fulfilled when Jesus said. Um, in verse 8, chapter, uh, verse eight that, So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. So that's the verse that confirms Jesus. Um, you know, he's saying, I'm sent by the Father, and what I say is not of my own accord. Um, also in Psalm 78, verses 1 and 2, this is where uh, Jesus specifically, he spoke in parables, and that was actually a prophecy. A lot of people think that, oh, that's just the way he taught. No, that's actually an Old Testament prophecy that was written in Psalms. <clears throat> and um, that is in verse 70, or excuse me, chapter 78, verses 1 and 2, which says, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable, and I will utter hidden sayings from of old. And then that was fulfilled in Matthew chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. And that would say that in all these things, Jesus said to the crowds in parables, indeed, that he said nothing to them without a parable. And this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables, and I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. And yeah, so that's pretty straight up forward in your face. And then uh, thirdly, now, we're going to go through a lot of these, and I know this is going to get a little bit repetitive, but I think it's important for the nature of this that we discuss uh, a good number of them. We might not do all of them, but I want to do a few. So, in Psalm 89, verse 9, um, Jesus says, or excuse me, not Jesus, pardon me. In Psalm 89, verse 9, the scripture says, you rule the raging of the sea when its ra waves rise, you still them. So, it's saying literally, you still the raging seas and um this is seen and, and a lot of times we sit there wondering what was the significance of jesus calming the storm not just that he could and just flexed on him but it literally says here and why he said to them why are you afraid and this is matthew 8 verse 26 and he said to them why are you afraid 
O you of little faith. And he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. I think a lot of times we don't um, reflect on the fact that a lot of these verses are given to us. And uh, I, I think a lot of it is that we don't read the Bible for ourselves and we just rely on what we hear at church. And sometimes it's not always the most in-depth, and that's okay. But uh, we need to get better about that. <clears throat> Psalm 147, verse 6 says, The Lord lifts up the humble, and he casts the wicked to the ground. And this was uh, basically foretelling Jesus' earthly ministry. And we see this in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, where he says, um, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, and he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And so we see this fulfillment of prophecy here. This is where Jesus was in the synagogue, and I think this is another one that we have later also. But um, this is something that <clears throat> foretells Jesus' earthly ministry. And in Isaiah chapter, uh, chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull. Make their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Healed. This is basically, um, I'll say basically, my, the way, my figures of speech are just terrible sometimes, y'all, I'm sorry. Um, but this is reflected in Matthew chapter 13, verses 13 through 15, and uh, what this is basically talking about, this is what Jesus says here in that, that he said, I will speak to them in parables because they see, uh, they seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed is their case in the prophecy of Isaiah that is fulfilled, it says, and then verse 15, it repeats that. So we see that uh, the parables were not understood by many of the people because, because the scripture says that they would be seeing and not see, and they would be hearing but not hear, not perceiving. Um be, and, and I think that there's, you know, maybe a couple of different ways to look at that. And I think one of the most biblically accurate ways is that, and Jesus has also said this in other parts of Scripture, where he can't openly discuss some of the heavenly things to the people because of their ability to comprehend it. So they hear, but they don't perceive, they don't understand, or they see and they don't comprehend in that way. So what he has to do is speak to them in parables. And the scripture says that, I, that he didn't speak to them without a parable so that they would understand. They would be able to comprehend the principle of what Jesus was talking about. Now, <clears throat> Jesus read aloud again, uh, Isaiah 61. I'm not going to read that one to you because I think that was one that we already talked about. Um, actually, no, I'm not going to read it, but I'll say this. that it, it, It's where Jesus reads in the synagogue, um, fulfilling that scripture where he says, you know, this, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I, I think I just read that a minute ago. Um, what Jesus read in, I think it was Luke. Yeah, Luke 4. And you can reread that on your own. In Luke 4, 16 through 18. Um, and then Hosea. And now here's where we get into very specific prophecies, y'all. Like There's some stuff in the Bible that um, I think a lot of times we look at the Bible and say, okay, yeah, Jesus died and this kind of thing, like Abraham and Isaac and the foretell. There's things that people, a lot of people, not even not even Christians know about certain prophecies, but let's, and we're talking about the life of Jesus right now in case, uh, in case that wasn't clear before. We're, we're talking about specifically prophecies about the life and ministry of Christ. 
And now we're getting into very specific, um, we've got a couple of very specific prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. And um, so <clears throat> Hosea 11, verse 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So this was fulfilled, and here's where it starts getting wild. Some of the other ones were kind of baseline, I know, and I don't mean to take away from them at all. But And then it says here in Matthew 2, verse 15, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. So Jesus literally did that. Um, then let's go to Zechariah. Zechariah. I think I said that right. Ze Zechariah uh, 9, verse 9. And this is even more specific, okay? Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is coming to them riding on a donkey. Now let's go to Matthew chapter 21, verses 6 through 9. And what do we see here? The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road, and the... And the uh, crowds that went before him and followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And uh, let's focus in on what that says here in verse 7. They brought the donkey and the colt, not just the donkey, but the donkey and the colt, and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Specifically, talking about pro this, this specific prophecy, this is where we're getting um, kind of... If this isn't starting to like make people... You know, if you're listening to this and... This isn't, you know, doing something. I'm not saying my words, but if the if this if the truth of this scripture isn't coming through clearly to you, I I I don't know what to tell you. <clears throat> here's a here's a scripture in the Old Testament that specifically says uh, talks about the thirty pieces of silver that Jesus was betrayed for. Zechariah 11 verses 12 through 13. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. This whole part of scripture is fulfilled. <clears throat> Excuse me is fulfilled in Matthew 27, verses 3 through 5. And it reads, Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And here's not just specifically the 30 pieces of silver, but even the part that talks about the throwing of the... Uh, throwing it to the potter, and throwing, this is in verse 5, Matthew 27, and throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. Very, very specific. And the thing is here to remember, and I'm going to talk about this again later, these these prophecies were fulfilled by people um, <clears throat> when Jesus wasn't around, right? Like, not all these, like, it's not like Jesus went and manipulated these events to happen the way that they did. This betrayal of Judas to the uh, chief priests and everything, this happened behind Jesus' back. Now, did he have knowledge of it? I believe maybe he did. I mean, he did. the Bible obviously says that he knew who was going to betray him, so yeah. But <clears throat> the thing is, we see here that very specific scriptures 
are being fulfilled uh, by Christ. Now, here's another thing. Um, the Bible. A lot of people say, "Well, why did God come as an ordinary man? Why did this happen? Why, you know, why didn't He come uh, greater? You know, why was He, you know, this regular person?" And um, this is answered in Isaiah chapter fifty-three. Um, the prophecy was that for He grew up before Him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him, and no beauty that we should desire Him. So He would come very plainly. He would come very, um, what's the way to put it? Very, homely, I guess. Not ugly, I don't want to say that, but uh, very plainly. So he, he came in, in as, our, as one of us. And then here we go, Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8. And um, this was written by Paul. And it says, um, this is about Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Here's the explanation of that. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And um, then another specific prophecy. Isaiah 52, verse 7. Uh, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, and who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. This is, uh, I'm not, there's yeah, I, I, there's too many New Testament passages to confirm that, but what I will say is this, that it's very clear that Jesus spoke from the mountains, like even Sermon on the Mount. So the verse in verse 7 starts out saying, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Jesus said, I've been anointed to bring you know um, good tidings to the... I'm not going to try to... I don't have it right in front of me, so I'm not going to try to quote it, misquote it on accident or anything. But it, but he says that he's come to bring um, you know liberty to the captives and, and proclaim the year of the Lord and all these things that he said in Luke chapter 4. And then you have here also in Isaiah 52 verse 7 where it it foretells that how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. And Jesus quite routinely taught from the mountains, spoke to them. And, and, and like I said, one of the most famous instances of this we see is when he gives the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, on the Mount of Olives. And um, he also taught to his disciples, I think it was on Mount... Um, I'm not even going to try to remember. There's so, there's a few of them mentioned in there, so I'm not even going to try to waste time trying to remember it. But, um, yeah, so we see that happen. That was fulfilled throughout the uh, New Testament. So here's another one in Psalm 110, chapter 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This alludes to Jesus um, being called Lord by David, and this is going to be found in Matthew chapter 22. Verses 44 through 45. So keep in mind, it says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In Matthew 22, um, this is Jesus talking to the Pharisees, and he basically says here, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? So this is an instance where Jesus is saying, David calls him Lord. So he's confirming his identity as the Son of God, calling him the Lord, not just Lord, but the Lord. 
And um, we've only got a couple more for this, and then we're going to talk about the death of Christ. And uh, thank you for bearing with me to this point. I know this is a little scripture heavy, but this is important for understanding the um, the prophecies about Jesus and the fulfillment of that him being the Messiah. So um, in Psalm 89, verses 35 through 37, I'm just going to kind of go through these and give you the scriptures. You can look them up yourself. Um, but yeah, Psalm 89, verses 35 through 37, talk about the uh, one of the things about the Messiah was that he would have to be the son of David. And um, that was fulfilled. Uh, if you look at the, so here's the thing about it. When you read the, especially the first four gospels and a lot of these genealogies in the Bible, not just that, but you see a lot of these uh, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, and it goes on. And it gets kind of uh, monotonous and you think that there's no real point to it. Well, these things exist for a purpose. And these, one of the clearest instances of this is that the Psalm 89 foretelling of the fact that the Messiah must be of the house of David, a direct descendant from the lineage of King David. This was fulfilled, and you see it in Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33, where um, Jesus is, let me make sure that I gave you the right, the, the, the right, um, dagummit, one second. I think I read, okay, one second. Let me make sure I gave you the right, verse here. Okay, yeah. So Luke chapter 1, verse 32 and 33, and um, talks about how he will be great, called the Son of the Most High. Anyway, um, that's what I want you to remember about that. And so if you go into Psalm 69, verses 14 through 20, there's going to be a severe anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane that is um, shown before Jesus' crucifixion. So I'm not going to talk about the New Testament one, because I think you can just look that up for yourself. But for the sake of time, I will read uh, briefly um, one of them. And um, this is just Psalm 69. I'm just going to read a couple of these. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but this is Psalm 69, verses 14 through 20. I'm just going to read a couple of parts just so you get the gist of what's going on here. And, um, yeah, so it says here, um, Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me, nor let the deep pit uh, swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Um, answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Um, I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me, because my enemies know my reproach. My foes all are known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair, and I look for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. And so this is, uh, uh, this is in Psalm 69. This is... Um, echoed in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus uh, tells his disciples that uh, his soul was, he became sorrowful, and he says, my soul is sorrowful to the point of death, and um, I think that's a really good example of where that was for, foretold in the Old Testament. So, Psalm 69, also in verse 9 for zeal, this is a prophecy. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Um, yeah. So zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And then let's go to real quickly, John. This is our last one about the life of Jesus. In John 2, chapter 17, and his disciples remember this is when Jesus goes in the temple and starts flipping tables and chasing out the money changers because they were, you know, charging interests and stuff like that. Um, and his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. In John chapter 2, verses, uh, verse 17. So, 
One second, y'all. I'm sorry for that notification I got on my phone just now. I'm turning my volume off. Anyways. So, yeah. And that's pretty much it. Like, I mean, these are some very, it's very clear to see at this point, it should be, that there are some very specific prophecies given specifically about the life, the ministry of Jesus, and the things, not just what he did, but the way he would do it. All the way from teaching on mountains to... Um, uh, what is it here? I got wrote down from his earthly ministry by him being sent by the Father uh, to specific things such as him speaking in parables, his parables not being understood except by the way that they were given, uh, being called out of Egypt, riding on a donkey, 30 pieces of silver that he was betrayed for, coming as an ordinary man, teaching from mountains, being the son of David, qualifications for him being the Messiah, the anguish before his crucifixion, and the zeal for the house of the Lord that consumed him. So you can see here that the life of Christ, this is just 15. There are so, so many more that we can find in the Old Testament. But yeah, so um, that's, that, you know, those are just, you know, 15 of them. And I'm not going to go into all of them. But like I said, these are just a handful. And um, I wanted to make sure that I give you a good number of them. So that way you can understand that this is something that is confirmed over and over and over and over again in Scripture. Um, now let's, you know, I'm going to try to go a little bit now a little bit, not speed through them, but a little bit maybe faster than I did for the life ones. We're going to talk about the death of Christ and specific prophecies that were um, that were specifically given about the death of Jesus and uh, the things that were accomplished that way. So here we go. The Last Supper was alluded to in Genesis chapter 14, verse 18, where it talks about Melchizedek, king of Salem, um, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. It says in Genesis 14, verse 18, this is a allusion to the Last Supper. And we see this um, being discussed because in chapter 6 of Hebrews, verse 20, it talks about Jesus is forever a priest, uh, a king and priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek was the title of the king and priest. That wasn't necessarily his name. That was his title. So Jesus being... Uh, of the uh, and there's a whole lot of stuff that I don't have time to get into on this. So you got to understand the Old Testament. That's why it's important as a Christian to read the Old Testament and to understand what it says because you can't understand a lot of the new if you don't understand the old. But Jesus was a king and priest after the order of Melchizedek, and it says that in Hebrews chapter six verse twenty. But the Last Supper was alluded to because he brought out bread and wine. This was a literal uh, from Genesis all the way to uh, the Gospels. This is something that was foretold. Um, that was that, that was kind of like like I said, this is an example of the type of Christ. So we see that these events are starting to parallel each other. In Exodus chapter twelve, verse forty-six, um, the Bible talks about not a bone of Jesus, not a bone shall be broken. Now this is specifically about the Passover meal, um, about the lamb of Passover. Was uh, they were given specific instructions not to um, not to break any of the bones of the sacrifice. So it says in verse forty-six of chapter twelve of, of Exodus. It shall be eaten in one house, and you shall not take uh, any of the flesh outside of the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. Now, we know that prophetically that Jesus was the Lamb of God provided for us. He was our Passover Lamb. And then let's go, now keep that in mind. Now let's go to John chapter 19, verses 31 through 36. And um, let's see here. One second, I wrote the, hit the wrong number. Okay, and here we go. Since it was the day of preparation, 
so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Because if you're not familiar with Roman crucifixion, it was basically a very torturous way of suffocation. So they broke the legs because your legs are basically supporting you the way that your body is positioned. And there's a whole like scientific thing about it. Go look it up. It's really kind of uh, gruesomely interesting. But um, So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other one who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. 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 Um but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it was bore, has bore witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bone, not one of his bones will be broken. So that's a specific. And this was after Jesus died. So like we're talking about prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, like completely uh, separate. You know, like things that were prophesied that were completed by Christ, and not even directly like that. Um, anyway, so let's go to Leviticus chapter 15. This talks about Christ's death and his priestly duty. So in order for you to really understand who Jesus is, we have to understand that Jesus is our great high priest. The Bible says he's our only mediator, our only advocate of the Father. What happened while Jesus, what did Jesus do? He didn't just die on the cross, right? I mean, he did. But what is the significance of that? And I think, especially with it being Good Friday and Easter weekend and everything, this is an important part for us to remember that Jesus, what his priestly duty was as our mediator and what it is now to, to intercede and to one time atone for our sins. This is what we're going to talk about for just a moment. We're going to describe this. And I think it's, I'm going to spend a little bit of time, not long, just a, 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 you know, a little bit longer than already. And uh, to really break this down so that it makes sense. And we're going to talk about the priestly duty of Christ from Leviticus and how it was echoed in or uh, brought up in the New Testament. And in Leviticus 16, verses 15 through 17, He shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do this with its blood, as he did with the, bull of the, the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place, because of the uncleanliness uh, or uncleanness, uncleannesses of the people of Israel, and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses, is the word that's used here. Now, no one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Now it's important to remember that. No one can go with him in the tent of meeting and from the time he goes in to the time he comes out and has made atonement for himself. So we see the atonement was made by Christ alone. No one could be in there. It was completely separate from us. And it's important to remember that it does mention until he comes out. This is what the Old Testament priest would do. Now, everything we know is a foreshadowing. So let's go in here. Um... Hebrews 9, chapter 9, verses 7 through 14. I'm going to try to, I'm going to go through this a little bit. Um, it's a little bit lengthy, so I'm not going to read it verbatim because that would take a minute. Not very long, but longer than I would like it to. So, um, but we see here in verse 7, uh, second to the high priest goes and once, uh, goes, well, once a year not taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the intentional sins of the people. Um, so basically it talks about how the Old Testament priest or, high priest goes in once a year and does this kind of thing 
and um, the, basically that the gifts and sacrifices that are offered are not perfect. They can't perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but they only deal with food and drink and various washings and the regulations um, and all this kind of stuff and talking about how they only cover the things that are, you know, uh, fleshly under the law. And then in chapter, uh, same chapter in verse 11, um, it says here, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He entered, talking about the heavenly temple, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls with the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify the purification for the sanct, for the purification of the flesh, how much more? So if the earthly blood of these earthly sacrifices um, sanctify the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So we see here that Christ's priestly duty was very clearly uh, foreshadowed in Leviticus, and uh, it was fulfilled after the cross, or at the time of the cross. So let's go to Numbers chapter 9, verse 21, and uh, this is talking about the um, snake, Moses lifted a serpent that they had made out of brass and all those who looked upon it were healed and uh, not died from their snake bites. Um, there's a whole story that you got to just go into on that one. Um, but for the sake of this, the verse says, and sometimes, it, let me see, is this the right one? I think I wrote, I wrote down the wrong, the wrong Old Testament verse for that. But anyway, yeah, so long story short, Moses uh, had to make this this mm, this snake, this serpent, um, and put it on a pole and lift it up because uh, because of the sin of the people that God had called serpents upon them, and He said that it, you know you make this serpent, put it on a pole, lift it up, and everybody who looks upon it, who simply just looks upon it, will be saved. And this is given to us again in the New Testament in John chapter three. Um, verses 14 through 18. I don't think it's going to be necessary to read the whole thing, but um, it does say here, and as Mo this is Jesus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Um, yeah, so we see here that the serpent was lifted up, and Jesus said, just as the serpent was lifted up on a pole, I will also be lifted up, so that whoever believes in me will not perish by eternal life. So, um, we know Jesus was lifted up on the cross. And rather you believe in the uh, Roman T cross or a stake, it doesn't matter. Jesus was still lifted up on a pole. So there you go. And then we're going to kind of run into Psalm 22 for a minute. There's about three. Um, I'm not going to go into all of them, but I'll say this. Uh, well, I will go into all of them, but I'm going to paraphrase a little bit here for the sake of time. Psalm 22 covers three things that I want to talk about. Number one, it talks about Jesus being poured out like water, um, poured out like water uh, out of joint. This is Psalm twenty-two is very. It's a heavy, ver a heavy chapter of Psalms that um, prophesies heavily about the cross. And uh, there are three things here that I want to discuss briefly. In Psalm twenty-two verses fourteen through fifteen, it talks about. Um, being poured out like water. And this is in John 19, verse 34, when Jesus was pierced 
uh, in his side, blood and water came out, poured out like water. Psalm 22, verse 16, talks about David said that they've pierced my hands and my feet. This is a prophetic verse. Because we know Jesus, uh, or excuse me, David wasn't physically pierced himself. Um, he wasn't crucified. But we see here that he says, they pierced my hands and my feet. This is in John 19, verses 34 to 37, and John 20, 27. They pierced his hands and his feet with nails. Psalm 22, verse 18, talks about, they cast lots for my garments. They cast lots for my garments. They gambled over Jesus' clothes at the foot of the cross. In John chapter 19, verses 23 and 24, this is where you see that. Now, Isaiah chapter 53, I'm just not going to go and read the whole thing because it would take, it's a little bit lengthy, but the whole chapter, literally the whole chapter of Isaiah chapter 53 deals with Jesus becoming that Lamb of God. So I'm going to read a couple of sections of it just to give you an, an idea of what's going on here. But Isaiah 53, if you haven't read it, go read it. If you haven't read Isaiah 53, I can't think of a better scripture other than the gospel's account of the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. I cannot think of a better part of scripture to read during Easter than Isaiah 53. It's not very long. It won't take you but a minute or two to read the whole thing. Um, but yes, go read it. And I'll read a couple parts of it so that you understand this. Um, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. And um, let's talk about this right here. I'm going to read a couple of verses more. So he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And here we go. Here's this famous verse that you hear a lot, but this is where it comes from. Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And um, all of us like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was, pressed and, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that is before its shears silent, he opened not his mouth. And it talks about um, even the burial of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea was the man. He was a rich man who gave uh, Jesus his grave. It says, and they made... His grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. That's when you see Jesus say, Lord, uh, thy will be done in the garden of Gethsemane. Um, he has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall she is, see his offspring and shall prolong his days. And um, it just keeps going on here. He bore, and the final part of this says, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So this whole—that's that, not even the whole verse uh, or the whole chapter, but that's just a you know a, a good little part of it to give you an understanding of what it's saying. Um, Isaiah chapter fifty-three is nothing but a prophetic chapter about the Messiah and what he would what he would suffer for man um, for our sins and the things that would happen to him. Now we talk about Jesus being scourged, the actual scourging itself, uh, where he was whipped and beaten. Uh, Psalm one twenty-nine verse three. The plowers plowed upon my back, and they made their long made long their furrows. The plowers plowed upon my back, and they made long their furrows. And that is something that we see in Matthew seven, chapter excuse me twenty seven, twenty seven, verse twenty six. 
And it reads, Then he released them for Barabbas, released then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Scourging, if you're not familiar, is uh, basically getting beat with a whip. If you've ever seen The Passion of the Christ, it's a very um, historically accurate idea of what that was. And it was um, the Cat of Nine Tails that has a whip of, of, of different long pieces of leather that had bits of glass, stone, jagged pottery, broken pieces of, um, you know, little things like that sharp jagged things that would be hit into the person and it would uh, literally tear away at the skin and rip out pieces of flesh. And I know that's a little bit gross to hear, but it's important to understand what Jesus suffered for us. And um, Psalm 129, it says that they, the, the, the plowers plowed on my back or plowed into my back and um, they made their furrows long. And there's another part of scripture where it talks about, I gave my back to the... Um, to the fur, I, I, I want to say I don't have it in front of me, but I want to say it's something like I gave my back over to the uh, to the furrowers or something like that. It's just talking about Jesus saying I gave my back to them, like I basically I, I, I surrendered my 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 physical body in that way. And um, but yeah, that's one thing about it. So Isaiah chapter 50, 50 excuse me, five zero fifty verses six verse six. This talks about um, other parts of what would happen to Jesus. And this is, it says here, I gave, oh, here it goes. Here it goes. Isaiah 50 verse six. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. And I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting from disgrace and spitting. Um, I gave my back to those who strike my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. And I did not hide my face from disgrace and spitting. Now remember what that says here. Jesus was beaten. He was spit on. His beard was pulled out. And uh, the reason the beard pulled out was important was not just because it was physically uncomfortable, because uh, in Jewish culture, man, uh, men, uh, it was a symbol of their their manhood. Um, that you know they had their beards and that kind of thing. Um, let's look at a couple of verses here. Um, they delivered Barabbas to be. Uh, he released them, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered them to be crucified. And then Matthew twenty-seven verse thirty. Um, and they spit on him, and they took the reed and struck him on the head. I'm talking about what they did to Jesus. And then 26, chapter 26 of Matthew, verse 67. Let me make sure that that's the right thing. I didn't write that down wrong. No, here we go. And then, um, and then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him. So this is like very specifically, not just, you know, very specifically talking about what happened to Jesus. Um, and then Isaiah 53, once again. We're going to talk very briefly about the verses that describe Jesus's. He says that his own would not believe him. And this is in 50, 53 verse 1 of Isaiah. Um, Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then we see this echoed in John chapter 12, verses 37 and 38. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him, so that what the word was spoken, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He did all these things, and his own still did not believe him, did not receive him. And um, now let's go to uh, Psalm 69. Once again, 
I, Psalm 69. There, as you can see, you, you can go to these ver these chapters when you start hearing them, and um, and just check it out yourself, also. But anyway, they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Sour wine to drink. Now let's go to chapter 27 of Matthew, verse 34. And uh, they offered him wine to drink, mixed it with gall, but when he had tasted it, he would not drink it. This is a very specific, y'all. Like these verses about Jesus' death and, you know, his death and crucifixion, his sufferings, um, they were very, very specific. Also in Psalm 22, verse 8, um, it talks about, they said that, you know, let the Lord deliver him since he placed his trust in him. Um, and then Matthew 27, verse 43, literally one of the Pharisees said the exact same thing. And they said, let the Lord deliver him since he placed his trust in him. Um, if he's the son of God, come off the cross, all that kind of thing. So we see very specific things, very, very specific prophecies being fulfilled here. Anyway, here's another thing. Uh, finally, Jesus was buried on the day of his death, right? Um, there's like no biblical pushback on that. The Jews, the reason this is prophetic is because uh, Jesus, okay, so it says when it was evening of the same day, you know, Jesus was uh, buried and then this is important because you need to understand the Jews were commanded to not leave any of the lamb of the Passover overnight in Exodus. This was one of the commandments given by God. So by Jesus being buried um, that same day and not being left on the cross overnight, like a lot of people were at the time, you know, they'd be out there for days. Um, the Jews were commanded to not leave any of the lamb. Jesus was the lamb of God and he was not left on the cross. He was buried the same day. Um, all right. So thanks for hanging with me on that. I know that was pretty lengthy. Um, on some of these verses, but now that we're past that, I want to talk very briefly. We can we're kind of hitting the stride on this, okay? So uh, if you bear with me, just a couple more minutes, we will be finished. But um, so let's bring it down to a couple of talking points and examine the consequences of these scriptures. Number one, why did the Jews not accept Jesus or believe who he was? Um, the answer is that many actually did, like a lot of them. The reason that they all fell away and abandoned him at his rest and death until the word spread of his resurrection was that the Jews had believed that the Messiah was coming to establish an earthly kingdom that would free them from Roman rule. And because of this, they missed the whole aspect that Jesus had come to free them from their sins. He wanted They wanted their Messiah to serve their purposes, not to submit to him. They, 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 wanted, them, they wanted Jesus to be the Messiah that they thought he should be. And when he did things differently they started to reject him. And by the time he was arrested and crucified, this came to full uh, full fruition, I guess. This is largely, I believe, why many people still continue to reject Jesus because they won't acknowledge what I call the sin factor. They won't acknowledge that Jesus isn't here to serve your purposes. You're here to submit to him, and he wants to change your heart. He doesn't want to just change your station in life. I think a lot of people look at God as like a prosperity thing, and I think that's a dangerous way to look at, at the Bible and at the gospel. Um, but yeah, that's why I believe that the Jews didn't accept Jesus because he didn't do what he didn't fulfill scripture the way they thought it should have been fulfilled. Because we know in the scriptures also, and Isaiah talks about that God says that my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. So God, Jesus, the son of God did it in a way that was according to the plan of God. And because we're imperfect humans, we don't have an understanding of what that is a lot of times. Number two, why was the resurrection important? Because we know about the death of Jesus, we understand about the blood of Jesus, we understand about the why the death of Christ was fit, why it had to be the death of Jesus, but why the resurrection? Why was it important that Jesus rose from the grave? The answer is because number one, it fulfilled prophecy. 
Jesus proved who he said Jesus proved who he was and who he is and it signified that Jesus' sacrifice had been accepted by God. So we talked about earlier that the return of the priest from the tent of meeting in the holy of holies in the Old Testament when the priest had offered the sacrifices when he came back out that's how the the the, the people of Israel knew that the the sacrifice had been accepted by God. So the resurrection of Jesus was the confirmation that Christ had successfully performed his priestly duty of atoning for our sins and that it had been accepted as complete and sufficient by God. And without the resurrection, hear this clearly on Easter weekend, everybody, without the resurrection of Christ, we would not have assurance of our salvation. Oh, and a side note, real quick, I, I'm not going to go into scripture again on a lot of things, but I do need to tell you this. Um, it was actually validated. People say, well, there, you know, there's no way to know that Jesus actually rose from the grave or whatever like that. Um, no, it was actually validated by people. Um, here we go. There's actually, the Bible records literally hundreds of eyewitnesses that saw Jesus after he was crucified. And then it says here, I'm going to read this to you because it's important that you hear this. And then we're going to go into some other inferences and then we'll be finished. But 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive at the time that this was written, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. And that's Paul. So we see here in 1 Corinthians that the Bible specifically talks about it in the life of other eyewitnesses recorded by eyewitnesses. Jesus showed himself it says, to as many as 500 at one time. This is recorded in Scripture, and there were hundreds of witnesses to this. This isn't some kind of conspiracy thing. This is just validating. So what inferences can we make concerning the Scriptures and prophecies that Jesus fulfilled? Number one, they're legitimate because they were fulfilled but they were written um, because they were, they're legit because they were fulfilled, but also they were written anywhere from hundreds to thousands of years before the birth of Christ, such as in Psalm 22. Also, Christ fulfilled many of these prophecies when the circumstances were beyond his control as a human. So, for example, being called out of Egypt as an infant or being buried in the time and the manner that he, after he died that he was to the very words that he spoke on the cross while being crucified, like when he said, my Lord, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This was something that was prophesied in Psalm also. And his earthly ministry fulfilled prophecies that were written about him hundreds of years before he was even born. From the way that he spoke to the actual locations that he spoke. So at this point, if you don't accept the evidence, it's because you don't want to. Logically, the only person who would be able to perform all of these things as they were written would be the actual biblical Messiah. Now, I know that I'm not you know, adequately able to speak about the Bible the way that it deserves to be spoken of. And I know that there's a lot that I'm, you know, am unable to bring to the table because of my lack of, you know, I don't have like a Bible college education. But hopefully you can see through scripture and through logical reasoning at this point that the evidence makes sense. Now, to those who say that the Bible was falsified, let me end on a couple of notes here. To say that the Bible was falsified would mean that the translators of the Bible would have had to go all the way back to the original manuscripts and make falsified copies to what was originally written in such a way that nobody could tell. And then they would have to do this in a way that would make them appear to be thousands of years old. And then, after that, never get caught 
and then enter the argument that it was translated, uh, and then you know enter in the argument that it was translated however X number of times, that means that the same process would have to have been repeated that many number of times over and over again, and then make sure that they never got caught also, and then they would have to get rid of the previously falsified manuscripts to ensure there were no inconsistencies. And all that would have hinged on the original mistranslators not being confronted by the original apostles in the early church in the early centuries when the Bible was first officially compiled, which based on church history, not the Bible itself, but the actual historical evidence of the church's history, that was never recorded as ever happening. So as for the word-for-word -word translation error conspiracy theory people, let me say that again. There's a conspiracy of people that are saying, okay, well, the Bible's... Uh, okay, so basically, let me just repeat. Let me just summarize what I just said. To say the Bible is falsified basically means that people would have to go enormously out of the way in such a way that it would be inconceivably impossible for somebody to go through this process over the centuries to ensure that the Bible was continually uh, falsified, but do it in such a way that nobody ever got wise to it. That's impossible. Because you would have to do it in several languages. Greek, Latin, Hebrew, Aramaic, you would have to know all these languages and translate everything and then make it look like it was thousands of years old and then remove the original manuscripts and then make the other new manuscripts seem like they were the original manuscript. It's just too much. It's just even talking about it just makes it sound difficult. And uh, when you start conceiving in your mind of what that would actually mean, how that would be impossible, there's no way there's no way to guarantee that that would ever happen. That's more of a fair uh, that's more of a fairy tale than, uh, you know, than Rapunzel. So there's that, and there's nowhere in the Bible, and all that means that it would also never have to have been addressed by the church, and in church history that's never been, ever been recorded. Um, and as for the word-for-word -word translation error people, there's a, a conspiracy people that say, well, the Bible's not true because of there's a word-for-word -word translation error. Well, that argument holds no weight at all because it's literally as easy as translating a science book from English to Spanish. It doesn't change the integrity of what's being said, nor the message, nor any other aspect of it, but it, the only thing that actually changes is the fact that now somebody in another language can understand it. Bottom line, the same God who created the universe and gave his word to begin with is able and he is faithful to protect it from corruption, and that's exactly what has happened. So hopefully, and there's a, there's a I encourage anybody who's questioning the authenticity and the uh, genuineness of the Bible. Um, I'm not speaking down to you, but I encourage you to do a little bit of research. There's a very good video by a guy named Dr. Vodi Bauckham out there on YouTube about, it's, it's titled like, uh, Why I Can Believe the Bible. And uh, it's, it's about an hour long, but it is a very good logical and historical and scientific reasoning as to why the Bible is actually genuine. And if you don't watch it and you just continue to be a naysayer, then I would just suggest that you just don't want to hear the evidence. And if you don't want to hear it, then that just means that you want to be willfully ignorant of the facts. And I don't mean that in any way to be disrespectful, but if you're saying that something's not true and then somebody's willing to present evidence that it is true, and you don't want to hear that, then that means that you just don't care about the, care about the evidence. So I would encourage anybody to, um, to look into that if that's something that you're struggling with. Anyway, so in closing, I'm going to borrow a quote from um, this same video that I'm talking about by Dr. Vody Bauckham. It, uh, it says that, you know, I chose, and this is true, I choose to believe the Bible because, and this is where the quote comes in, quote, it's a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. 
that report supernatural events that fulfilled specific prophecies and that claim that these writings are divine in nature rather than human in origin. Let me say that one more time. It's a reliable collection of historical documents. Why is it reliable? Because it was written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. So it was written by eyewitnesses, but also in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. So if, it, if something was inconsistent, it would have been addressed. But this, all these writings, they report supernatural events that fulfilled specific prophecies, such as Jesus being the Messiah, which is the focus of this podcast and the focus of this week and the focus of everything should be Christ is the Messiah. And that they claim that these writings are divine in nature, that they came from God, inspired by the Holy Spirit rather than human in origin. Did, did human beings write it down? Yes, obviously. But God gave the word exactly as he intended, and the word that we have is the word of God. It has been translated into other languages, yes, and it has been translated out of the original Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic and has been translated into English and Spanish and Chinese and whatever else, yes. But in no point of any of those translations has the Word of God been corrupted. Have there been attempts to do so? Yes. But they've all been exposed and they've all been corrected. The Bible that we have today is a reliable collection of historical documents that was written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses and it reports supernatural events that fulfilled specific prophecies and claim that these writings are divine in nature rather than human in origin. So you see here, scripture does not contradict logic. It actually supports logic and it affirms logic because the truth of the scripture can be confirmed by logical reasoning. And Jesus confirmed himself as the Messiah and the only son of the one true living God by fulfilling these prophecies. So I, I, I can't make you feel a conviction. I can't make you feel a certain uh, pull to God. I'm not going to try to tell you that you need to be a Christian. I'm not going to tell you anything. I just want to present you with the evidence the best that I can. And if I've, if I've failed at that, I apologize to you. But I really do believe that what um, the Bible says is true. I believe that um, wholeheartedly. I place my, my entire existence in that. And um, I just want to give anybody who's listening the invitation to salvation today. Uh, this is Good Friday. Um, I'd encourage you, read Isaiah chapter 53. Read the New Testament. Read the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And um, take, this, take some time this weekend. Maybe watch The Passion of the Christ to get a visual representation of what, what Christ has done for us. And to really let that resonate in your spirit and think about... Um, the things that Jesus suffered for us. Go to church on on Sunday and or or today, tomorrow, whatever, whatever church you can go to. Um, look into it. Look into what they teach. But you know, get into a good church. Um, if you're feeling like you you know you haven't been living right, and uh, you know that there's sin in your life that you need to repent and ask God to forgive you, and you want to and you want to be following Jesus and you want to commit yourself to Him. I just invite you now to just say a simple prayer. I'm not going to lead you in one. I don't believe. I think it comes out of your heart. But I will say, you know, if you if you trust in the Lord, He will cleanse you of your sin. You ask Jesus to wash you in His blood. He's already paid for your sins on the cross. That's what this whole weekend's about. And uh, it's just to remind us um, of what's been done for us. So God loves you. Jesus does love you. He loves you. He died for you. He rose again from the grave. He is a living Savior. He's not dead. He is risen. And as we come up to Sunday, that's what we're going to be uh, proclaiming and remembering. So thanks again um, for everybody who is... Uh, somebody who spoke into this podcast, somebody who has encouraged me and my endeavors with this podcast. And I just want to say thank you again. Happy Easter to everybody. Uh, happy Good Friday and um, get into church on Sunday. And let's just remember the death and resurrection of our Savior and our Lord. And um, 
yeah, uh, coming up soon, I'm going to have another podcast, uh, hopefully sometime this weekend or next weekend, uh, probably next weekend about uh, hypocrisy and what that means for Christians and what that uh, is defined as. But anyway, thanks again for tuning in. Happy Easter and God bless you.